on the record on news talk a very good morning to you. It is Sunday, the 25th of November, and this is News Talks on the Record. It's Gavin Riley here filling in for Kieran Cuddy today until 1 o'clock. If you want to contact the show, you can send us a text at 53106. That will cost you 30 cents. We are also on Twitter at News Talk FM, or you can tweet me personally at Gav Riley. Lots coming up on the programme today. Donald Fallon will be with us for another instalment of Hidden Histories. We'll have the off the ball team on all of the weekend sport, including, of course, all the managerial changes that are coming and may be coming off the pitch as well. But we will kick it off as we always do with our look at the Sunday newspapers and our panel in studio today. Professor Gary Murphy, political scientist at DCU and author of Electoral Competition in Ireland since 1987. Siobhan Masterson, who is the head of corporate affairs at IBEC and Labour, uh, Labour's Alex White, he's a Labour councillor, senior counsel and a former minister for communications. So you're all very welcome and thank you very much for coming in this morning. Um, let's go through the front pages of the papers. Uh, the Sunday Independent, nation in grip of boom envy. Uh, the economic recovery has given rise to a phenomenon of boom envy, which is leading many people to believe that others are benefiting while they are being excluded, according to experts in the area of consumer sentiment, who also warn that the gap between headline economic growth figures and the day-to-day reality for many households is souring the views of people that many people may have in the overall effect of the economy. Also inside the Sun Independent, uh, the lead story in the sports section, uh, Mick McCarthy will fly into Dublin today to return to the role as Republic of Ireland manager. He will take charge of a second spell and his first port of call is to try and re-recruit I always almost going to say Damien Rice there it's Declan Rice I knew I was going to make that mistake but I'm glad I got it out of the way earlier Uh, that Declan Rice will be the top of his hit list to try and get him back into the Ireland fold so an interesting start to tenure for Mick McCarthy when he's unveiled later on Um, the Sunday Times Sex for Sale and the Anglo-Irish Tycoon it has a story about uh, some uh, allegedly nefarious goings on at a Chelsea apartment block Uh, but also on the front page Crumlin sent out cancer gene test to wrong woman John Mooney reports that a Galway woman who underwent genetic tests at Crumlin Children's Hospital in 2013 to see if she carried a gene which carries a high risk of cancer was accidentally given another patient's results. This is the second mix-up of such tests at the hospital, the paper reports. Sunday Business Post revealed challenges to revenue commissioners leave €700 million unpaid. The revenue commissioners are involved with a dozen major disputes with large taxpayers with over €700 million at stake, including one case where an individual is appealing a bill over €19 million that was found at their home. The paper says that figures from the Tax Appeals Commission show that it's working through 17 high-value challenges to revenue assessments, including 11 corporate tax cases. Three of them are in excess of €100 million. An awful lot of money tied up in a very small number of cases. Uh, the Mail on Sunday, I could have put a bomb on a Ryanair jet. I stress that is not me, Gavin Riley, saying that. That is the headline of the Irish Mail on Sunday. It has done an investigation about airport security at Stansted Airport where it is found that one person was given access to the airside security side of all of the, the planes and they may have been able, uh, had they been so minded, uh, to engineer all sorts of terrible things because there was very lax security, it would seem, according to that story. Um, and the Sunday World leads with the headline, I'm so sorry, Traveller Dad blames racial abuse for starting vicious match brawl. This is the case, of course, of the referee who was beaten after a a regional soccer match um, in the Midlands a few days ago. A traveller dad who received a 40-year ban after a ref was savagely assaulted has broken his silence saying, it should never have happened and I want to say sorry. Jean Dinnigan, who is 50 years old, claims the melee which led to the shocking attack on ref Daniel Sweeney was sparked by the racial abuse of his two sons uh, who were referred to by racist language by other men during the course of the game. So that's what's in um, today's papers. We have our paper panel to look through it, but before we just go to that, uh, let's hear a little bit about the very top story, which of course is the one we cannot get away from, which is Brexit. Uh, You've heard a little bit of Leo Varadkar in the news bulletin at the top of the hour. Let's hear a little bit more of him now speaking as he arrived to that European summit in the last few hours. 
So pleased to be here in uh, Brussels this morning for uh, what is very much the culmination of nearly two years of work, uh, two years of negotiations. Um, obviously, uh, still regret the fact that the UK is leaving the European Union, the best uh, outcome for Ireland, um, and I think for Europe and Britain would be uh, for the UK to stay in the European Union, to stay in the single market and customs union, but um, we respect their decision uh, not to do that, so we spent two years trying to negotiate an agreement uh, that... Um, uh, protects uh, our interests, uh, our citizens and our economy. And I believe we have that, uh, an agreement which allows for an orderly withdrawal of the UK from the European Union, an agreement which protects uh, the freedoms and rights of citizens, particularly the common travel area, uh, an agreement which provides a transition period uh, during which we can negotiate a future relationship. Uh, and if that isn't successful, uh, then a backstop that kicks in that assures us that there'll be no hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, and that we'll continue to have uh, tariff-free and quota free trade between Britain and Ireland, which is very important for our economy. And that is the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar speaking to reporters, including News Talk's political correspondent Sean Defoe outside that European Council summit in Brussels. We'll be crossing to Sean later in the programme to find out exactly what has gone down. Uh, in the meantime, um, Alex White, when I asked you what your thoughts on this were, you basically cast your eyes to heaven and said, let them eat cake. Well, what I'm saying is that it just shows that you can't, in fact, have your cake and eat it. And I think Jim Callaghan, who was a British Prime Minister many years ago, before your time, I remember him saying one time in the course of some big political controversy that the sky, the quote was something like, the sky is darkening with the sight of chickens coming home to roost, or some <laughs> such phrase. Because the chickens do come home to roost. And Colin McCarthy has a very good analysis in the Sunday Independent today, where he basically demonstrates, he shows that May failed to square an impossible circle. And if you look at the DUP conference yesterday and all of the fantastic, a lovely piece, Stephen O'Brien's fantastic piece um, in the Sunday Times, John Downey in the Sunday Independent, Hugh O'Connell, they're all in the Sunday Business Post. Mm. You know, the conference yesterday where they're struggling, they're still struggling with this idea that a better deal can be obtained. That, in other words, that the cake can be held on to and eaten. And they borrow us right there in the centre of it yesterday in Belfast. And it just is, unfortunately, the case for them, and regrettably for us as well, that it has taken so long and continues to be a problem for people failing to see that it's one thing or the other. It's either a catastrophic collapse out of the European Union no deal, that looks like edge. it's going to happen mm. or it's going to be what a British an, a, an Irish U, a university professor in London, Ronan McRae has described as a pointless Brexit which is what's on the table and this is the struggle, it's a pointless Brexit in other words one where you follow the rules but don't contribute to the making of them mm. or you crash out in a catastrophe I mean it's shocking that in at this stage of the you know human and economic and political development of our world that a, a once extraordinary country like the UK should find itself in this position. But unfortunately, it's not just going to affect them, it's going to affect a lot of other people, including us. Uh, Gary Murphy, what do you make of uh, the the fudge that has been uh, universally agreed by everyone in Brussels this morning? Well, I I think it's a uh, a tribute to the negotiating skills of the EU27 that we actually have a, a deal. I think it's a tribute to the cementing of the uh, all for one, one for all uh, it is some achievement to get 27 sets of national interest into one yeah, document, Yeah, and I think it? the British miscalculated as far back as June 2016 uh, with the Brexit referendum result that at some stage there will be a weakening of the support for the, the Irish position and that I think was a fatal miscalculation and the, the trouble now, of course, for Theresa May is that notwithstanding this deal, if you look at it from the British side, is that it's really difficult to see how she can still get it through Parliament, notwithstanding that she still remains uh, Prime Minister, has seen off the rather quixotic and eccentric ERG uh, mm. challenge that really never 
never uh, fulfilled Which isn't itself. to say that it mightn't. No, it's not. Mm. But I mean, I, if, if, if there was a momentum to it the night of the, the, the agreement was announced and, and nothing has happened in the last couple of weeks and I, I can't see it happening. And no, and... Uh, I mean, I'm not sure who else there is in the Tory party who could uh, make any better fist of it. Well, um, isn't that the difficulty, that if, if this deal were to be voted yeah. down, Theresa May has clearly tried to present this as if it's a confidence matter in herself. She's mm. been doing so many radio phone-ins that this is now her deal, and if the deal is rejected, it's effectively her being rejected. But there isn't really anyone who might take over who could either sell the same deal nor conceivably get their own one through Brussels either, is there? No, uh, the reality is that they all want to go back to see if they can renegotiate a better deal, and I think, going back to my earlier point... Uh, the EU is not for turning, uh, to quote Margaret Thatcher, uh, another famous British Prime Minister, just to follow on Alex's uh, quip. Uh, and in that context, it's very difficult to see uh, what the British can do. They've backed themselves into a very difficult uh, spot. The other alternative, of course, is she loses the parliamentary vote, there's a general election, and then uh, Labour came in with Mr Corbyn, a noted Eurosceptic, uh, continues to be, and mm. I'm not sure that would get anyone any further either. Uh, Siobhan Masterson, I will give you a moment before you have to come up with some witty quip from some previous uh, British <laughs> Prime Minister as well, but of course, th- this, is all, <laughs> this is all um, premised, education, education, education. Um, this is all premised on the idea, of course, that the deal is on the table, is going to get through, and there's always a certain amount of, of preparation that you can have for the prospect of the deal that we all know is there getting through but what if the deal does not get through do you feel like the the Irish establishment business core political core have adequately prepared for the prospect of Britain leaving on March 29th and there being no safety net afterwards well look I I guess that's the question Um, and while I can't tell you what um, the Irish establishment or government have been doing I can't tell you what business has been doing but first of all just to reflect on um, I suppose the transition agreement that's been signed off today and also more generally on the kind of if you like the divorce settlement or the political uh, strategy Um, and while I'm not going to quote a former politician what I will say is it's a little bit like Hotel California Uh, you're allowed to (laughs) check out but you're not allowed to leave and that's where the UK finds itself today. So, you know, the Brexiteers were never going to be fully appeased in relation to their aspirations. Mm. They're never going to be met. So the question is, what can happen now? And it's bizarre because there's the kind of parallel universes going on. So Theresa May has this incredibly complex engagement strategy, you know, where she's doing phone-ins with the BBC. She's writing today letters to the to the UK uh, people. Um, Up she goes, mistakes on herself, Yes, though, really. she goes over to Brussels the day before on this pretense that she's still in negotiation mode. Mo- where she's not at all. Mm. Um, So that's kind of amazing that she has all of those factors. And yet it is likely that it will be turned down in Parliament this week. Mm. So it's it's kind of crazy, but who knows what the outcome is. Um, I guess from an Irish business perspective... um, one of the things that, that I've observed, particularly over the last uh, few weeks, I've been traveling around the country, engaging mm. with a lot of CEOs based outside uh, Dublin. And I suppose a lot of the preparation has gone around drafting contingency plans. But what we're now starting to see is the button being pressed on those contingency plans, right? And what they look like are, you know, kind of low cost contingencies, um, looking to diversify markets, looking to uh, do currency heads those kind of things but I think you're really going to see that ramping up so, so speculation they've effectively around. made up their minds that the deal is not going to get through and they need to now prepare for that likelihood uh yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose they've put a deadline on their contingency plans, which is very wise, and they have to. The question is, can they start implementing those contingency plans without absorbing too much cost? So, for example, one of the examples we're hearing at the moment is that um, 
Irish business in particular are bidding for warehousing in the UK, right? Mm. But now the warehousing is full to capacity. So that presents a serious difficulty, right, in terms of blockages to contingency planning. Um, Diversification of markets is something that Irish companies should have been doing anyway a long time ago, long before Brexit. So it's a good kind of wake up call on that front. Mm. So we can see, for example, within the dairy sector, that diversification is really starting to come through. Uh, with huge growth in exports to the Middle East and North Africa. So that's a, a really but positive... But the long and the short of it, though, is that businesses are now effectively acting as if it's going to be a no-deal scenario anyway, that they seem so little faith in this getting through Parliament that yeah. this, is kind of, this is a done deal. I, I mean, yes, but the other positive in relation to the agreement today is it does provide for a longer transition period than just the two years. Mm. So it does allow an extension of that transition year period for either an additional year or an additional two year years. So the longer the transition period is, the better flexibility, I suppose, it provides for everybody, yeah. both on the political side and the business side, to get our house in order. Uh, just that's in, if there's a deal. Yeah, and just in case no I get left, yeah, left out of the, yeah. uh, the pithy quote, uh, Arama, there's a great one from John Downing today in the Sunday Independent. He's quoting um, Lord Hill, who actually drafted Article 50, which is now the process being invoked by Britain to get out. Um, the British, no, that's not the particular quote. He said that it was uh, every single EU treaty negotiation uh, begins with high diplomacy and ends in a dirty row over fish, which given how <laughs> Gibraltar may have brought the whole thing up to the skids a little earlier in the week seems very prescient. Yeah. Um, yeah. Alex, what should your comrade across the water, Jeremy Corbyn, be doing about all of this? Should he be trying to rally votes in favour of a deal that's on the table? Should he be trying to renegotiate? Should he try to scupper it? Should he abstain? Um, what exactly well, would you like them to be doing? very disappointed, I have to say, in our colleagues and uh, uh, fellow sister party, whatever it is, Labour Party, is particularly the leadership. I think it's been unclear. Um, from him, not so much from Keir Starmer, who I think is who has run a very good show in terms of his approach to this in recent months. He at um, least is coherent. At least he's coherent, exactly. I mean, that's the point. So it has been very disappointing. Um, I think that ultimately what the British Labour Party wants, as any party in a position that uh, that they're in, wants is an election and to take power. Um, but I think but there would comes they risk a moment... down this deal on the pretext that it may cause an election and just run the risk of a no deal as collateral damage? You always want an election if you're in opposition in the position that they're in. Maybe some of us in opposition here don't necessarily want an election <laughs> that quickly. <laughs> but if you're in a position on. like the British Labour Party, you always want an election. Uh, so that's what they're pressing for, the advantage that they believe would accrue to them from, from an election. I'm mm. not so sure if it would accrue to them. Um, but there also, there also comes a point that even when you know there isn't going to be an election, that you need to act in the public interest and in the national interest. Mm. And you need to actually orient yourself to a position which is, as you say, coherent. Yeah. And, and what, I'm not what sure is that course that. in the interest then? Well... I mean, I don't think if I was in the British Labour Party that I would support this uh, particular deal because, as I say, I think it is a pointless Brexit. Um, like, we're all conflicted because we're looking at it from the point of view of where we are here in Ireland. But if I was a British Labour MP or I was living in England or as a citizen of the UK, I would say that this, I, that this particular proposal is literally a pointless Brexit. Now, I'm, very, I'm pro-European, mm. so I'd be a Remainer and I'd want to stay. Um, and I would see this not as a halfway house or not as anything that was acceptable or, or, or uh, um, viable even. Uh, so I think I would be following what Tony Blair is saying and, and others, and I'd be voting against it. Um, there's, a, there's a very interesting piece in the Sunday Times, Middle England ready to gamble on Prime Minister Corbyn by Matthew Goodwin. 
Um, and there's a very good pull-out quote. The Brexit vote showed voters are willing to roll the dice for change without knowing the implications. And that would be the classic view of uh, people voting for Jeremy Corbyn, who still is a type of old-style nineteen early 1970s uh, hardcore economic uh, nationalist who thinks the state uh, can resolve everything, and um, including things like nationalisation of things that have previously been privatised. Maybe that's a good thing. But would rejection uh, but the of a Brexit deal be enough of a reason for the UK to jump off a cliff like that and decide that they want to actually go with the devil they don't know rather than the devil they do? But see, the problem is that the British took a decision in 2016 without knowing the implications of what that decision was. So I mean, they have form. They have form, and it is exactly. And it was a kind. I think Fintan O'Toole, who I disagree with on many things. It, is right in this in this way in, in his recent book a kind of a, a longing for a return of empire warm beer England mm. being good at cricket uh, these kind of things and uh, without thinking through the extraordinary complexity of trade deals uh, and this idea that we could trade I mean there was a ludicrous uh, last week David Davies was in Oklahoma of all places talking about an Oklahoma British mm. trade deal <laughs> uh, you know Oklahoma I've been there and it's yeah. kind of big place but with not many people there three million or so I mean this is the sort of fantasy that the Brexiteers are living in, uh, uh, but a British general election, I, I think, would be no done deal for for Labour. Uh, there was a lot of talk about how great Jeremy Corbyn did the last time. Remember, Labour won three elections. Yeah, they won the landslide in nineteen ninety seven. They were re-elected in two thousand and one. They were re-elected in two thousand and five. So they have form in winning elections, and he couldn't uh, he couldn't win in uh, last year. So. You know, I think uh, all these things are still to play for yeah, sure. as regards calling calling an election. But I, I don't see any value for Labour opposing or uh, supporting Theresa May. It's not their job to keep her in, in power. Sure. Um, I, I do want to go to a break, but just before I do, Siobhan, it must be very depressing when you hear the likes of David Davis proposing a, a UK-Oklahoma trade deal that your members north of the border must be absolutely aghast at how little understanding there is of who exactly is entitled to strike trade deals and what is the benefit of having them. Yeah, I mean, it's look, it's a huge frustration. And uh, one of the things we do is we work very closely with the CBI, um, who is our equivalent in the UK and have have a northern branch, mm. if you like. So we have a joint council between business in the south and business in the north. And we've produced a lot of, uh, I suppose, joint publications and statements, particularly in the context of Brexit. Uh, there's a lot of ignorance there. Um, I suppose two points uh, crucially to make. One is in terms of business north and south, it's inc- critically important that everything is done on an all-island basis mm. in terms of investment now, that that strategy is looked on a uh, an all-island basis rather than north and south. The second thing is looking at the US and, you know, it's interesting that uh, David Davis is o- over in Oklahoma. The US has become a lot more aggressive in terms of courting business in Europe, the individual states. We've had a huge rise in the number of US states coming over mm. to court to court investment <clears throat> from Europe, from Ireland, from the UK and from Europe more generally. So that dynamic is probably not just being led by the UK. Mm. It's probably just as much being led by the US. Yeah, I still can't help to think, though, that it's very depressing that someone who would have been responsible nominally for negotiating a Brexit deal for a little over 12 months, up to 18 months, would still think that it is possible to strike trade and deals. his successor didn't know about the volume of trade coming yes. in and out of yeah. Dover. Yeah. The, former, the, former, the former chief of the civil service in Britain made a point last week that David Davis was uh, at some remove from the negotiations and never really liked going to Brussels in the first place to do the uh, the, hard, the hard discussions yeah. that need to be done in these, these types of deals. Good. Well, you know, anyone who was at home 
from thinking that there might have been the prospect of deals being done in smoky rooms and that in fact there was some sort of coherent uh, new world order happening behind the scenes at least that will put them to bed that in fact it is just the, the, the jumbled mess that everyone seems to perceive it as being uh, Gary Murphy Siobhan Masters and Alex Wider staying with us it's Gavin Riley uh, filling in for Kieran this morning and on the record more from our panel in just a moment On the Record On News Talk. Welcome back. It's uh, coming up to 26 minutes past 11 o'clock. It's Gavin Riley here from Virgin Media News, filling in for Kieran Cuddy this morning on On the Record. We are going through uh, the Sunday newspapers with our panel, Gary Murphy of DCU, Siobhan Masterson of IBEC and Labour Councillor and former Minister Alex White. Uh, the front page of the Sunday Independent, uh, I was intrigued by, but also felt like a certain amount of deja vu. The nation in the grip of boom envy, it says, the economic recovery giving rise to a phenomenon of boom envy where some people believe that they are benefiting, or rather, rather that others are benefiting from an economic recovery while they themselves are being excluded, that the the yawning gap between day-to-day reality and headline economic figures is souring the views of many people, which may eventually affect the overall health of the economy. Now, I would have thought that we would have learned that in February 2016 when there was a whole idea about keeping the recovery going, Gary Murphy, and it seemed to sell very well in certain parts of the country and didn't sell well elsewhere. I would have thought that was a fairly straightforward indication that, in fact, there was a certain amount of boom envy as far ago as three years ago. Yeah, and, and it sold um, in, in parts of Dublin here, uh, but it didn't sell in rural Ireland at all. And, no. And um, that was a big thing. And what, I, what Fine Gael learned, I think, from the 2016 general election was two things. One, campaigns matter. Um, and then the Kenny, I think, many great achievements to his name. Certainly, the, that election campaign wasn't one of them. He performed spectacularly, ineptly, uh, in my view, and probably cost Fianna a number of marginal uh, seats. And that Fianna Fáil's message in Ireland for all resonated to some extent with the uh, uh, with the public, particularly those outside, mm. um, you know, the leafy suburbs of South Dublin. But is there a certain amount then at this time around of Fine Gael learning its lesson? Because one of the sub-headlines on this piece is that Pascal's on who admits we must improve living standards. Yeah, and there's a few interesting pieces. Dan O'Brien is an interesting piece. Uh, uh, Jody Corkin bought in the Sunday Independent about that. People are looking for something more than just uh, tax cuts. Tax cuts are all well and good and you know, people want more money in their pockets generally, uh, but they also want decent public services. They want to know when they go to the health uh, when they call in the health services that they'll be treated quickly and promptly mm-hmm. and correctly unlike the, the story on the front of one of the papers Indeed, uh, yes, today the and they want to know that they'll be able to get their children into decent schools with uh, good class pupil uh, ratio and they want to know that people will have a home and they won't be walking past people uh, in the streets and I think it's trying to square that difficult circle is where the next general election will be uh, will be fought. Siobhan Masterson, I'd be keen to get your take on that then. Exactly how does one square that? If there is this sense that there is a certain amount of boom envy and nobody wants there to be haves and have-nots, at least any more than there may already be. No one wants to exacerbate the gap. Uh, But how exactly does the government square the circle of trying to raise living standards when its plan is apparently to put three grand a year in the back of people on the average wage? So I think a couple of things. The the headline certainly on the front of the Sunday Independent today is sensationalist, uh, as we would expect. But what might be more appropriate if we said nation in grip of being rationed public infrastructure, <laughs> which I think would be a lot more um, uh, pertinent. Uh, and, you know, it's I suppose this is all about perceptions, right? So a couple of facts, right? We are... Uh, we have huge private affluence in the country at the moment. We are incredibly wealthy. Uh, the OECD are saying Ireland is the fifth wealthiest country globally. Um, so, so that is a fact. Household wealth has increased by 5% uh, this year alone. Um, and I guess the question is, why aren't people feeling that? And the reason is, is that 
the standard of living and the quality of life that people have is very, very poor at the moment. So is it the cost of living too? It's not just the cost of living, although that is a knock-on effect. It is things like poor public infrastructure, uh, shortage of housing, uh, no access to, to education and schools, childcare, all of those things because of uh, years of underinvestment, because of, um, I suppose, investment being stripped out of all of those crucial public services. What we have now is a, is a dynamic where there's a lot of private wealth that's been brought in by business who are paying wages and, and, and all we have to do is look at the corporation tax receipts. And unfortunately, it's not being matched by public expense. And so you have this strange dichotomy where you have public affluence uh, but private squalor. Mm. And the longer that's allowed to fester, the more unhappy the electorate will become, right, because it's not being shared around. So what can be done? Certainly not tax cuts, right? That's certainly not going to address those problems. It's not sustainable. It's very short term and it's extremely worrying. What we have to do is, I suppose, as a society, look at how we start to invest in that public infrastructure. And the best way government can do that at the moment is... uh, not take the money in terms of tax cuts, but actually try to innovate. Take the money from the households, but by way of a kind of a an SSIA scheme or look at innovative ways in borrowing that money to invest in the areas where they feel they're being rationed. I see Alex White cocking his eyebrow at the idea of a second SSIA scheme. <laughs> uh, well, maybe not a second SSIA scheme, but I find myself in complete agreement with both of my fellow panellists this morning in, re- in relation to the emphasis that they place on what's needed in the country. But I could also... I mean, you can see from any I was in, in that government in 2016 mm. leading up to that election and the notion of the recovery the idea of recovery doesn't translate into anybody's any normal person's mind at all like it's something that politicians and economists and commentators talk about a recovery quote unquote but is it's it how you are in your own figures? life it's how you are in your own life it's true that there is a recovery the mm. proposition is accurate but it doesn't mean anything to people very often like if i so 15% were unemployed 5 years ago only something over 5.5% mm. are unemployed now yeah. it that affects the people who are now employed who weren't previously but to most people those sort of now i'm not being anti intellectual but i think people do analyze no, the country but that they are live you basically going in, back to the, time, the 2007 labor slogan of but are you happy well, that's also problematic because can politicians make you happy? But what I think politicians can... <laughs> queries, quite query, alert no. query, Some of them <laughs> certainly can't. But, but I very much agree with you. I mean, it's more, much more complex for a government or for political parties, let's even get away from the government, for political parties to present a vision of how you can have a good society and mm. how things can be better where you live and where your family live. And it and does come down to for. schools and health and so on. And housing, obviously, specifically at the moment, housing and other issues like that. Climate action, climate change, carbon taxes. I mean, we're going to need carbon taxes. Mm. So in the week when there was an announcement of the Fine Gael Ordesh that there was going to be a cut, a cut in taxes, there was also a debate about carbon tax. And in fact, uh, ironically, the figure that was involved in terms of the, the macro figure was going to be the same. So, yeah. sorry. I no, but we did, we did have Leo Baranker in the door saying that, that, that the, the figure that had been presented, which was supposedly around €3,000 per household per yeah. year, he said it was way wide of the mark. But there is a prospect, yeah. some people think, that it could be even higher than that. Yeah, but there does need to be a, collect, a, a debate broadly about, collectively as a country, about what kinds of things we need to do in Ireland to make the country better for more people. I, I and that's not just a question of, t- of, cu- of tax cuts. I think that, frankly, I think that Leo Varadkar's announcement smacks of something from the 80s or the 90s. I think politics has changed, people's view of the world has changed, their families, their material circumstances. And also, sorry, the final point is, sure. the real problem for, for politicians promising tax cuts is people don't believe they're going to happen. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong in Fine Gael advocating for tax cuts uh, 
you know, it's a typical. But is it the right thing for the country? Perhaps it's not, the right but, thing for their electorate, well, perhaps maybe. Perhaps not, but it's a typical centre-right view of, of the world dating back to, not not even the early 80s, but, but uh, post-Second World War consensus type stuff. So I think it's reasonable to say the problem is if you're, if you're not getting your, the benefit of your tax uh, euros in the health services, in education, in transport, then you start saying, well, what the hell is going on? And I think that's one of the difficulties uh, for Fine Gael. So I don't... But then how can you have Fine Gael on one hand, you know, constantly lambasting the fact, and particularly since Leo Varadkar came in, constantly saying that we have one of the highest health spends in the world, mm. we therefore deserve one of the best health systems in the world. Thereby clearly clearing the suggestion that we do not get our money's worth in health. He was and yet he decided that if there is further money available, indeed, that if there's further money available, he'd like to put into people's pockets and not into a system that may need it. Is he saying that? Because I think if he's saying that, that's that's really problematic. Yeah. I mean, we do get value from our health service. Can I just say something that might sound unpopular? You don't hear it in program. Mm. We absolutely do get value from our health service. We have people living longer. People are healthier. We have vast more, vastly more procedures that are possible for people now to improve their quality of life. Any of us can see it in our but, families. But he has you fairly explicitly say, stated it several times that he doesn't yeah. think we certainly get as much as we should get for the always money Always push for in. more efficiencies. Always push for things to be done better. Always push for the costs issue to be driven down. And always push for those things but it's just quite wrong and it is a harkening back to the 1980s and the discourse of the 1980s to say that the state should be pushed out you know reduce the taxes let people look after themselves mm. get your own health insurance you're on your own we need a collective effort to deal with the problems mm. in the health service a collective effort to deal with housing collect childcare these are questions that can only be solved by a society coming together and there could be room for some tax cuts down the road there could be but I'm sceptical about that because I think we're going to need by the way we're in a growth phase mm. in the economy so it's not so much so, so it's it's like if we're going to have four or five percent growth over a period of years, what do we do? What ratio do we do we apply to tax cuts like versus you're looking for spending like a, a slanger care? Uh, everyone hold hands around the table view of how exactly we should spend our money for the next ten years. I do I, think that yeah. we should. Sorry, I think I think as well. There's a wider issue here. First of all, I I wonder whether as a society and government we really understand what's going on in our economy. So how we've recovered and mm. the kind of income that's coming in. And as a business community, we've been talking about Ireland as a kind of a frontier economy. Mm. So we've seen huge movement of intellectual pro- uh, property into Ireland and um, corporate balance sheets. And that's given us this huge surge in the economy. So we have this incredibly positive economic backdrop. It's a great opportunity for us to do something. But what we don't do is find one billion four days before budget day mm. in corporation mm. tax receipts and then pump it into the current balance um, expenditure on health. What we do is we take that income and put it into something that's going to product, be productive and give us more sustainability in the long term, like, for example, higher education. Mm. That's where mm. people get sceptical when these mythical sums are, are phoned yeah. and used on something that needs to be uh, used for well, stop And, gas. and, and this is why I come back yeah. to the issue about understanding. It's what we've experienced in Ireland over the last three to four years is very different to what other co- economies have mm. experienced, right? So it's not in the kind of traditional economic modelling. Our business model is actually very different, right? Mm. It's built up of these intangible assets and it's as a result of what the OECD mm. did around al- aligning a uh, corporation tax strategy with substantial economic activity. Mm. And that's why we now suddenly find ourselves very, very prosperous. And this huge private affluence that we, and we see mm. business making huge huge private investments. Um, And the question is, government needs to understand that 
and actually take some of that money, but not put it into current expenditure. And I, that's yeah. where we I see the say, skewed. I must say, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that it calls for a more sophisticated analysis by the broader yeah. society and political parties and politicians mm-hmm. than ones that we, than, than that we have seen up to date. Mm-hmm. And like a, a, and all parties have been guilty of election promises that are glib, and including my party. You know, we've all been guilty of just falling into like, what will work? What can we maximise votes on and so forth? But can we just step back a bit and look at what would be, as I say, in the collective interests of the yeah. of the broader society, how we can use the wealth that we have and understand where that wealth has come exactly. from. Well, I'm, I'm struck that the uh, the slaunch your hands across the table thing that I oh, mentioned, yeah. you know, only partly, you know, jokingly, but we have someone who's from the party that's meant to represent the interests of workers and somebody yeah. from the Confederation that represents Agreed. the interests of the people they work for. And you both seem to be exactly on the same page, which is, yeah. you know, here we go, slaunch your care too. Would be surprised again. at how aligned business is with society, yeah. Gavin? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would embrace that level yeah. of, of, if that is the position that IBEC and business are taking, I would welcome that and I think that's actually very, very encouraging and yeah. I say that as a Labour Party person. Um, uh, sorry, Gary, go ahead. No, I'll just make one point. It's in today's business poll, uh, business post, excuse me, poll. Yes, uh, the poll that, that was taken uh, on the few days before and the few days after Leo Varadkar announced uh, raising yeah. the tax cut-off point to 50,000 and, and there was a margin of error increase by one point. And Fianna Gael remained 34% in around a third of the people uh, they've been at 34, 33, 33, 34 in the last four polls. Yeah. I think the story the, of those ones the is the is whole, one, yeah, the cent- But my point is the centre is holding and holding quite significantly and... Mm. I mean, in the bailout days, there was no guarantee that the centre would uh, would hold. And I think in one way, this is uh, the the strength and resilience of Fianna Fáil as a political party. I mean, we, there was, we talked about Mary Lou MacDonald, she was mentioned in the news at the beginning of, of the programme. Uh, you know, and that great breakthrough that everyone assumed would happen at some stage, 20%, you know, coalition government, that hasn't happened at 13%. And I think that's because of the, the resilience of the... Uh, of the soldiers of destiny at 61% that's down yeah. about 20% from the Hades of the 1980s yeah, sure. we, only but had, good we only had three parties in the last election I it think is, that's fair uh, Dan O'Brien makes the point actually that he says there's a drift of the political class towards social democracy so that he says that to, within that 61% of Finnegan, as I understand mm. him to mean, within not just the Labour mm. Party, because we're small at 6% in that poll, but the 61% of Finnegan, Fianna Fáil, he's saying, and I think he's right, that there is a drift towards social democratic ideals and principles within that 61%. So it's a very, it's a very complicated political uh, uh, landscape at the moment. Mm. Very, very complicated. Mm. But it's, it's very, if you look at the poll, and I, mean, I do believe, believe I'm one of the political people, I think polls do tell you things that mm. you need to be very mm. careful. You don't reject them. It is the 13 percent of Sinn Féin is actually a very significant drop and comes in the wake of a catastrophic election for them in the presidential. Do you think that has taken uh, the wind out of their sails to a certain amount as well? Aside from the centre holding that Leonie Reid is uh, less than stellar performance may perhaps I do have think that. I think that it was a very, very serious miscalculation for Sinn Féin in that presidential. Not running Leonie Reid. She was a perfectly good candidate and no criticism of her. But they sought to elevate Irish unity into the centre stage of the presidential election, right, in the context of Brexit and everything else. And they sought to turn the election into something that it was never going to be. And they were told by the Irish people, sorry, no. Like, they made a massive miscalculation. And I think that they will, they will rue that. And at a time, we were talking about Brexit earlier, you know, a serious, an existential question for, for, these, for all of these nations here. 
And Sinn Féin is at its weakest in terms of the, in, in, in the context of the public debate on Brexit. Mm. What have they got to uh, offer? What are they adding to it? Nothing. So their actual raison d'etre, their whole point of Sinn Féin, they're not actually delivering on it. Um, other perspectives are, of course, available. Uh, you're listening Indeed to these talks are, uh, on the record. It's Gavin I don't get a chance to say that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's Gavin Riley this morning filling in for Kieran Cuddy. There is a press conference, we should say, taking place in Brussels uh, right at the moment uh, with Donald Tusk, who's the President of the European Council, and Jean-Claude Juncker, the President of the European Commission, uh, talking about the Brexit deal and what the next steps are. Uh, and the T-shirt Leo Varadkar is due to speak in the next hour as well on the deal that's been signed off, so we'll be crossing over there shortly. Uh, we'll be back with the panel in just a moment where we're going to be talking more about the future of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and broadband and a referendum on water services. Back in a moment. On the record. On News Talk. It's 11.45 on Sunday, the 25th of November. This is Gavin Riley filling in for Kieran this morning on News Talks on the record. 53106 is the number for your texts. That'll cost you 30 cent or you can tweet us at News Talk FM or at Gav Riley. We are going through the morning papers with our panel, Gary Murphy of DCU, Siobhan Masterson of Abeck and Labour Councillor and former Minister Alex White. Um, Siobhan, I want to talk a little bit about the future of the National Broadband Plan. We had expected that as by now we would have seen the report uh, from Peter Smith whether the National Broadband Plan has been given a clean bill of health or not. Uh, but there is also quite interestingly some stuff on page 10 of the Sunday Business Post where Hugh O'Connell and Jack Horgan Jones uh, have obtained some some new emails uh, where effectively it is seen that David McCourt was telling Leo Varadkar of his close personal relationship uh, with Dennis Nocton which you would think perhaps on one level maybe uh, doesn't quite square with the reports that we're hearing that this is going to give the the, the bill a clean bill of health um, but you at some point you wanted to make about the general uh, impact of all of this on the business sector and, and related areas. Yeah I mean I suppose just um, specifically on the article it's you know FOI releases are showing the, this correspondence between David McCourt and, and the Taoiseach. Um, there is a kind of a narrative around a book launch that the Taoiseach was invited to, didn't mm. actually attend, was then sent the book, the signed copy. But why that is you important, know, I suppose, is because it means that the Taoiseach was aware of the supposedly close working relationship between the minister and David yeah. McCourt in the first place. Yeah. So a couple of things with this with this piece. Um, and I suppose one development which is particularly alarming is at the moment, the National Broadband plan is being, I suppose, it, it is currently out for bidders, right? So mm. it hasn't been signed off yet. We don't have a, a bidder yet in the in the process and it hasn't concluded. Yet, on the other hand, you have PAC uh, led by, by Chairman Sean Fleming asking for um, the broadband controversy to come before it while it actually hasn't concluded yet. So I don't know how that can work, right? Where mm. you actually have an inquiry into something that hasn't concluded as of yet. Is that an example of one lever of state not knowing what the other is doing, perhaps? Uh, I, I'm not sure what it is, but it's certainly very, very unhelpful. Okay. Uh, and I don't think there'd be any legal substance to them being able to do that. Um, mm. But it's certainly reported today in, do, the, in do, the business Does post. it strike you as being a little bit jarring, though, the idea that Leo Varadkar might have been told fairly explicitly that, oh yeah, the bidder has a really good relationship with Dennis Nocton, and then still for him to have apparently withheld his confidence in Dennis Nocton when he found out about a lot of these meetings that he may already have known about? Uh Look, I, I think that's the way Irish politics works and it actually came to the point where Varadkar had to make a decision. I think on the plus side, one of the big selling points of the way in which uh, government interacts with the private sector in Ireland is that they do use the private sector for insight and expertise, mm. expertise to roll out particular projects, right? So that's And that's a real selling point within Ireland, right? Now, unfortunately, in the past, that has led to serious, serious... Um, uh, misjudgments on the part of both politicians and business And you'd understand why people have concerns around the optics of it Precisely. But we now had have 
pretty robust mechanisms to work around that. So, for example, the Standards and Public Office Commission, uh, we have the lobbying register and the lobbying regulator. She now is about to launch a new code of conduct just this week around, you know, the interaction between lobbyists and government. So there's pretty robust structures to avoid the kind of, I suppose, details that we've heard through successive tribunals over the years um, around the engagement between government and, and business. So it's how you can try and keep the importance of that agility for government to be able to speak to business yeah. and vice versa without crossing that line. And obviously here we saw some lines being crossed. Specifically on the plan, a couple of things, right? First of all, um, look, we, every day of the week, um, you know, somebody who works in IBEC, I hear from business that the problems around connectivity, mm. right? And connectivity, particularly in regions w- which are less populated. It is a serious, serious problem. It needs to be addressed and will get around some of the bigger quality of life issues we, t- we touched yes. on earlier, right? Mm. Housing, um, uh, commuting times, uh, traffic, all of the, those issues, right? So connectivity is key and broadband being part of that. What sometimes is lost is the investment that the private sector have made in that connectivity over the, fa- the last five years. And I know that ta- the telecoms companies have invested over three billion in connectivity. And we, so we've seen this massive increase in terms of high-speed broadband around the country. Mm. And in terms of penetration, that's moved from 30% up to 70% in the last five years. I'm sure right? that is something that so, my, my day-to-day job employers would probably be keen to underline, but I'll park myself from that particular discussion. Uh, Sure, sure. That said, there are still a lot of areas around the country where there is a need for state intervention because it's not commercially viable for the private sector to actually roll out high-speed broadband. So how do we get around that? We get around that by using the the National Broadband Plan. Uh, Unfortunately, because you know, the other bidder in the party, which was um, um, uh, pulled the, out, Cyro yes, yes, and, um, and ESB pulled out um, early in the in the um, process. We were left with one bidder, which was Granahan McCourt, and they submitted their tender only in September, but it was after a long, I suppose, courtship between mm. um, the minister and, and the bidder. Um, Alex White, as the predecessor of Dennis Nocton in that brief, and we won't talk mm. specifically about the report because we don't know what's in it and we'll have to wait for that to be published, mm. but in principle... Um, and you would have seen with some of that nexus where sometimes the state leans on private sector for expertise. If you had been asked to go to a private function with the uh, chair of the sole remaining bidder for a massive contract like that, do do you have any kind of a political spidey senses that immediately tingle and say, that's not a good look? Or do you think that this could be a useful opportunity to gauge the views of industry? I would definitely shy away from any kind of contact like that if you're in the throes of a procurement process. I mean, you know, there's, we all have, we, we live in a relatively small country. We run mm. into people all the time. When I was a minister, you ran into people um, maybe in different contexts or maybe they come in to see you about something that's germane to what they're doing or what yeah. you're doing and they're also involved in, in, in talking to you about, about other matters. So you have to be extremely careful you have to be particularly careful and your antennae have to be working overtime yeah. when you're in or when your department is in a procurement process. But Dennis Nocton would have said by certain rules. that all of these events that he went to with David McCourt, that the ones which were admitted, the ones which came out on the day that he ultimately decided to, to stand down from the position, that the, the bid was not discussed at any of those and that there might be, you know, the procedures around having to take minutes and all of that, but you don't need to worry about minute as, taking if you don't discuss the bid. But as you said it, just at the beginning of our short conversation, we'll have to wait and see what Mr Smith says in his report about mm. those meetings. Because mm. I don't know what happened to Which those we'll meetings. To this, you, if you're having these types of meetings, uh, no matter whether the bid is 
going to be discussed or not, they need to be minuted. And the the whole point of that lobbying legislation, and I, I was involved tangentially uh, with it, which my uh, party promoted. No, and I was going to say one of the yeah. one of I was Sorry. one of the great. I, I've been quite critical of Labour and government. <laughs> but one, no, I've been quite critical of Labour and government, as you know, Alex. But, but one, are available, one yeah. of the one of their great strengths was bringing in the regulation of lobbying act. And I think the minister in charge of time, Brendan Holland, you know, mm. did a very good job. But citizens need to know what politicians are doing in their names, who they're meeting with. This is, and once this is all available on the internet, it doesn't matter if anyone goes about and checks it or not. And this is what happened with Dennis Nocton when he also had to saga with INM and Celtic media yes, back yeah. in April where he said that he was making a conversation as a, as, as, as I think as a normal citizen. You, you're not a normal citizen if you're a minister uh, in the in the government. That's right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And, and, and unfortunately, with regard to the lobbying legislation is the onus is on the, lo- the person lobbying rather mm. than d- those being lobbied. So mm. the onus is entirely on the other, on the non-government party, which again, probably needs to be looked at and rebalanced. Mm. Can I just say it across... Across the globe, that would be the kind of standard view mm. that those who lobby are the ones who should actually be registering. It. Can yeah. I just say that I want to agree again with Siobhan on something? Um, <laughs> possibly Let this Gary be as the well. date that we goes be, out we, better, we better have a fight. <laughs> yeah. But no, the, 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 the Public Accounts Committee would wait in. I mean, you're talking about a minister having meetings and propriety of that and so mm. on. But that the Public Accounts Committee at this point in a procurement process, delicate, difficult, mm. complex, would, be examining would, this would initiate an investigation into a tender that hasn't concluded it's, yet. It's beyond absurd. It would be so potentially damaging. I mean, think again, Sean Fleming. This is not something. <laughs> this timing is very bad on this. And Catherine uh, Murphy is a good TD and very meticulous and chases things all the time. And that's all fine. But... This is not the time to wade into a pro- process that's already perhaps vulnerable or potentially vulnerable, mm. to, to, which could ul- ultimately end up undermining it. Uh, in the couple of minutes that we have left before I have to, to let you go, um, Gary Murphy, what do you make of the plans revived this week to have a referendum on ensuring the ownership of the water system in the Constitution? I'm against it. I'm against it on the grounds that uh, putting in or inserting complex questions of public policy into the constitution uh, are generally not a, a good idea. I know Is it complex? I think it's pretty complex because it's not just water charges and water services to people who get their, their, their service from wireless water, group wells, all this stuff has to be brought into the look of it. And the, the view that owner Brendan and others expressed uh, during the week, he made a very impressive case on Morning Ireland, although I disagree with it, is that, uh, you know, there seems to be a huge consensus for this. Uh, ergo, you know, we should put it into the constitution. And constitutions are important, of course, for mm. signalling where countries want to go. But people change their minds and things change over time. There was massive consensus in 1983 for the Eighth Amendment. That changed over time to where we had the the referendum to get rid of it. And I just think that inserting complex views of public policies, it's like government by referendum. It's not a good idea in general. In one final attempt to try and find some policy differences between Siobhan Masterson (laughs) and Alex White, and we are very tight, so I'm going to ask for a one-word yes or no answer. Siobhan, uh, are you in favour of the holding of a referendum on enshrining public ownership of water? Absolutely not. Alex? I'm in favour of it. And the argument that Gary makes that people could change their minds in the future is precisely the best and strongest argument for having it. Because because the point is that you would ensure that it wouldn't change in the future. That's the reason why people are arguing. And people are suspicious that even though there's a consensus at the moment yeah. that it won't change, that that might happen in the future. So you're That's why they want to put yeah, it and, in. And so you you're in favour. respond to that by saying... Very is, briefly, look, Looking at the way in which the world is going, right? Look, mm. Looking at the disruptors out there, looking at the way in which things are going to change so rapidly, the future of work 
nationalisation, denationalisation, deglobalisation. How can we possibly have a referendum on something, on a concept so rigid that may not actually exist in 2020? Hooray, a row that we can revive the next time that Alex White and Siobhan Masterson are back in studio. <laughs> uh, I'm very, we're going to have to leave it there. My thanks to all three of you for coming in. Professor Gary Murphy, uh, political scientist at DCU, Siobhan Masterson, who is the head of corporate affairs at IBEC, and Alex White, who is a senior councillor, a Labour councillor, a senior council and a Labour councillor. I'm sure that's a mistake people make quite a bit. Uh, a senior council and a Labour councillor, uh, and as well as being a former Minister of Communications. We'll be back for you with lots more in just a moment. On the record, on, the record. on News Talk.